welcome to Splatter Chatter, where October never dies. My name is Mr. Craigers, and I am one of your hosts this evening. And I am Miss Melmoy, and I am the other host of the evening. That is correct. And tonight we are bringing you episode 76, in which we will be discussing the 1992 Bernard Rose directed, Clive Barker adapted, Candyman. Candyman. The Candyman can. The Candyman can and the Candyman did. (laughs) A lot. Um, We thought, you know, while you're still nibbling on your sweets from Valentine's Day and while you're reflecting on Black History Month and while you're learning new things for Women in Horror Month, that Candyman would just be the perfect film to hit on all of these Fantastic little topics that we've got going on. Um, it's going to be a pretty interesting discussion, I think. Miss mm-hmm. just mentioned a very interesting article that she read that I'm very curious to hear about once we dive into our discussion. Um, I know I feel like I caught a lot of things when I rewatched it over the weekend where I was like, why have I never really noticed that before? <laughs> movie? So that was cool. Um, before we dive into our main discussion, let's do some horror headlines or any horror updates, what we've been reading, watching, talking about, what's, what's going on? You got anything, Miss Mel? Um, the awesome trailer for The Green Knight. Yo. Yes. Yo! (laughs) Atmospheric dark fantasy from A24 is all I want, starring Dev Patel. It's all I want, though. Lisa like, Aaron as Guinevere, evidently. And didn't it feel like it was one of those, like, things where, like, the trailer just sort of appeared out of nowhere and now, like, everybody <laughs> is obsessed with this movie? And everyone's suddenly, like, an Arthurian scholar. They're like, well, it's a tale of Sir Gawain, who is the nephew of King Arthur. And it's like, okay, guys. <laughs> like, giant, like, Twitter threads. like <laughs> For those of you who need to know about... Yeah. And then, like, there's going to be shaming for people who, like, didn't read the original, like, epic poem or whatever. Mm-hmm. But... Which translation did you read? Um, the Bitumen? No. <laughs> Go jump off a bridge. Go jump off a bridge. Oh, you've only read Tolkien's version? Well. <laughs> um, but yes, no, literally, I, I only knew it was a thing the day before the trailer dropped. Yeah, like, it just, like, it just popped yeah. out of nowhere. And it was like, we're, we're here. Here we are. And I was like, great. This is all I want. Um, So that's pretty exciting. Um, And in May, it's coming soon to, like, be dropping your first trailer. Yeah. It's this May. That's going to be here before we know it. Mm -hmm. Um, All along with all kinds of other interesting things that are coming down the pike. Um... The Lodge, I believe, has started doing limited screening. Um, same with Color Out of Space. Oh my god, I need to... That's playing at the same theater I saw Parasite at, and I really need to... Uh... Yes. Also, snaps and claps for Parasite. This is our first episode post oh, yeah. that's a big. That's a big horror headline. Not super yeah. horror, but... Right. Suspense, horror. drama, thriller. Yeah, yeah horror adjacent we're very happy congrats to them um 
what else is going on? Let's see. Let's see. Oh, the original King Kong is coming back to theaters for the first time in six decades. Wild. One of the original creature features for those that uh, are a fan of um, giant monkeys and pretty women in white dresses. And them both at the same time. And both at the same time. Um... Let's see, let's see. I feel like there was something else I was meaning to bring up for horror headlines. And now I'm suddenly... I did finish, I don't know if I mentioned this before. Um, I did finish Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Oh, yeah. Very good. Talk about that. Yes, very good stuff. Mr. Craigers got me that for a birthday gift, I think, almost a year ago. Or maybe it was a Christmas gift. You got it for me. No matter one of them. Um, <clears throat> finally sat down and read it. Um, it's interesting because, you know, parts of it do feel dated. Like, they use, you know, like, out-of-date terms for trans people. And it obviously only talks about men and women, not other genders. 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 Um, but no, it was very good. And it was very interesting to, to look at various things that way. And it actually made me go back and look at Midsommar and kind of, like, view it in the lens of a, um kind of contemporary revenge film, similar to, to I Spit on Your Grave and um, Last House on the Left, minus, like, you know, the trauma here is a much different type of trauma than in those movies, but um, mm-hmm. it definitely, there's, there's stuff in there that is for sure timeless, I think. Uh, it was very interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yes, no, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Also, I saw this trailer for this, looks like a wild tv show it's not horror it's a drama series oh, on what is freeform it? called motherland fort salem motherland fort salem uh, it follows three young women from basic training in combat magic into early development uh in a women-dominated world in which the u.s ended persecution of witches 300 years ago after an agreement and basically they kind of sort of became their own country and basically, they're like a military, like, the, the witches of Salem are like a military organization that protects the country, and they have to go fight in World War II. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it starts this, March wait, 18th on Freeform. On, wait, what network? On Freeform. Damn it! It's on Hulu, too. It should be on Hulu as well. Oh, okay. No, I just meant, like, this premise is amazing. Oh, yeah, no, the fact that and it's I on wish, Freeform. If it was, like, a serious drama. If it was on, like, FX, it would be great. Yeah, I would, like be through the roof i still might check it out though that sounds really fun yeah it's like sounds like a reverse handmaid's tale like a reverse gilead yeah yeah it (laughs) seems and like the trailer's so funny because it's all these women walking around in like straight up military uniforms but then saying like you know hail sisters of the night and like doing their chants and shit like that but they're in like you know like 1945 like army uniforms how funny what a what a what a so it's going to be something. I don't know how long it's going to be something, but and it's check it out. Motherland. Motherland colon Fort Salem, which okay. makes me think that they're going to try to do other things in this. Oh boy. In this vein. But Motherland Fort Salem. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I remembered what I wanted to bring up. Oh, go for it. Two things. Uh, one is that uh, Bloomhouse is finally releasing The Hunt. Mm. Um, they're releasing it next month on Friday the 13th. 
<laughs> you know what that means, guys, though. So. Yeah, that's right. You know, <laughs> you know what we'll be releasing on that day. <laughs> um, yeah, and if you so for those listening that aren't aware, The Hunt is a movie that was supposed to release last year. Um, and there was a lot of controversy surrounding the production and just the general idea of the movie, um, because it's about this group of people that are being hunted by like, um, elite one percenters. They're like hunting down average Americans. It's like a game. It's like the most dangerous game. Oh, good. But, but updated. And, uh, so there was a lot of controversy from, certain circles um, feeling that this was not an appropriate movie for the times. And so um, about like a month before it was supposed to be released last year, uh, Bloomhouse and Universal came forward and they say, uh, said that they stood by their filmmakers, but they've chosen not to release the film at this time. And people were like, well, are they ever going to release it? Turns out they are. Um, the poster, they just have the original date crossed off and the new date right next to it. It immediately wins best poster of anything. Um, so the hunt is coming. It's coming next month. Should be very interesting. Like who, the the funny thing to me now is, is like, it might not even be that good of a movie, but because of the controversy surrounding it. Yeah. It's well, just, and it's, didn't Trump, even Trump got in on it. I believe he did. Yeah, I believe he voiced his displeasure. So, naturally, we need to release it then. Yeah, and so... All on the poster, all the, the mean things people said about the movie. Mm-hmm, That's like, great. Yeah. And I think cited them, too. Yeah, yeah, put their little names. The most talked about movie of the year is one that no one's actually seen is what it says that's that's incredible yeah demented and evil dangerous Dangerous. not appropriate political uproar see this is the kind of stuff i want in this day and age well it's coming goodness (laughs) so that'll be interesting um yeah i would say i'm looking forward to it no yeah no i gotta go deal is Gotta go see this. Gotta go get on it. Gotta go tell other people to see it. Yeah. Also, it's got kind of a Emma Roberts, Hillary Swank. Like, yeah, there's some people like, in this. Yeah, decent cast. Decent cast. So, we shall see. We shall see. Mm-hmm. And the other quick thing I had that I thought would be uh, interesting of note is that um, the great iconic Robert England is um, starting a new TV show, I believe, on Travel Channel called True Terror with Robert Anglin. They fit to book an Airbnb with him? Yes, and each episode will involve um, the man most famous for Freddy Krueger narrating a trilogy of tales with each story brought to life through reenactments that feature all sorts of monsters and supernatural spirits. It's a six-part series. It also premieres next month on the 18th. Uh, There's a trailer up uh, over on Travel Channel's social media and whatnot. 
and it looks like they're sort of promoting it in the vein of like um, unsolved mysteries, but like for horror fans. No, so, I'm a fan. <clears throat> yeah. Let's see. Um, the first episode will deal with a North Carolina storekeeper tormented by a prophetic countdown to his doom. A teenager who finds himself trapped in a waking nightmare, unable to save himself from a horrific fate, and an Atlanta police station that becomes a battleground for a killer or a vengeful spirit. Mm-hmm. They will also cover, in the first season, The Axeman of New Orleans, which we have talked about in our Axe Murders of Villisca episode. Um, a farmer and a devilish curse, a greedy undertaker defiling the dead, and a future president that enters a savage beast den. Oh. So, I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so it's called True Terror with Robert Anglin. It premieres next month on Travel Channel. Nice. I don't get Travel Channel, but I will find a way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this, so there's PSA for any and all. For those who have, like, cut the cord and just do streaming, um, there's this app that I used so that we could watch the Oscars called Lowcast. Hmm. Where it's like, it's only for like major cities, but it lets you watch like broadcast network television for free, like your local television and stuff. Interesting. So if you live in a major city and you want to watch, you know, your local TV, try Locast. Ooh, they do have it in Philadelphia. See? Well, look at this. So it's in Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Phoenix, Dallas, Houston, Denver, Rapid City, Sioux Falls, Chicago, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. So there you go. If you happen to live in any of those locations, you can get Locast to watch local broadcast television for free. Nice. Which I'm pretty sure the Travel Channel will be included in that. Yes. So. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. Um, good updates, good things to look forward to. Let's move over now into our main discussion for this episode. As we said, what is 1992's Candyman? Um, directed by Bernard Rose, um, who happened to connect with Clive Barker and, um, was like, hey, I really think I can adapt your short story called The Forbidden. And Clive Barker was like, great, go for it. And so this was the resulting film of that uh, that chance meeting and that led to a collaboration. Nice. Yeah. So shall we do what we love to do and set the scene and then walk ourselves through the plot? <clears throat> uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Would you like to start? Or should I? Oh, my God. Go for it. Go for it. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, so my God. We begin with a tale. Um, okay. Helen, well, who you'll see in a minute, Helen and Bernadette, um, are telling each other a spooky story about a young woman who has a sort of tryst with a man who is not her boyfriend and decide they decide to play a little um, 
game while they are having their sex capades because you know whatever they're in the bathroom and they look in the mirror and the woman says Candyman five times it is five five times um and then sends what's his nuts downstairs and says oh I've got a surprise for you wait down there he waits down there she turns off the lights as soon as the lights go off uh, a figure suddenly appears in the mirror and then we cut away uh, as she screams, and we learn that this woman supposedly was um, sort of disemboweled, ripped from, what is it, ba gull gullet to... Stem to stern. Stem to stern, belly it? to gullet, something like that. Point is, is she got... <laughs> she is dead. Um, and it supposedly was the Candyman uh, who... Did the, did the murdering. Um, the legend goes is that if you stare in the mirror and say Candyman five times, he will appear and kill you, basically, in a very, like, graphic way. Um, we learn more. There's more to the legend later on in the film. But that is the basic legend, of which we, I think we all have some version of this. Obviously, Bloody Mary is a thing we used to do in the bathroom. For kids in New York, Cropsy is kind of a more regional boogeyman. But that's the, the premise here. Um... And Helen and Bernadette are doing a sort of group or joint dissertation, I think, some sort of graduate, they're graduate students, sort of some sort of graduate student project on the Candyman and the urban legend because it has strong ties to um, the Chicago housing projects and they're looking at it from the angle of like sociology, anthropology, how does um, a supernatural boogeyman become responsible for the like in the in the cultural minds of people, become responsible for the horrors of a housing project or low-income, predominantly black areas. This is what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> after she does that, they they you know break off. Um, she goes to see her husband, who like every time this comes on, it's not Robert England in Urban Legends. <laughs> but, like, I kind of, for a minute, I'm like, wait, is it Robert Englund in Candyman or Urban Legends? Because <laughs> there's right. also a scene where there's a professor talking about folklore and urban legends. In, in, like, a classroom. I was like, I thought that this time around, too. I was like, they definitely, in Urban Legends, just were redoing this scene, right? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yes. Uh, so she goes to see her, uh, Trevor. This man is named Trevor, by the way. He's a grown Trevor. man named Trevor. <clears throat> um... So she goes to see Trevor, Trevor Lyle, um, who's like got a kind of gross relationship with one of the students. Um, one of them's a little bit flirty. Uh, Helen's not a fan, but she goes to see him and she's a little bit annoyed that he's talking about urban legends in his lecture while she's trying to do like a project on it. There's some sort of like academic tension there. I don't really understand these things. Um, but anyway, they break off and uh, Helen goes to do more work and... Um, she starts to dig a little deeper. She does. So she's digging deep. She's particularly fascinated by Candyman, a sort of this backyard urban legend. Um, and one night while she is uh, researching into the legend, she um, happens to connect with um, two uh, custodians at the school who tell her about um, a friend of theirs or cousin of one of them, something like that named Ruthie Jean, who was a former resident of the Cabrini green uh, housing projects. 
in downtown Chicago. And the story, according to them, is well known around Cabrini Green that Ruthie Jean was killed by Candyman. So Helen's like, great. I can't wait to find out more about that. So she starts digging into the Ruthie Jean murder and discovers that there is upwards of 20 different murders um, that have happened in the Cabrini Green projects that have been attributed to Candyman. And she's like, what's the deal about that? And they're all, of course, very brutal, very savage, like, you know, as Miss Mel was saying, ripped apart type slayings. So she convinces Bernadette, who does not think this is, thinks this is like academically interesting, but not maybe a line of, uh, a line that they should pursue. Um, She convinces Bernadette to come with her to Cabrini Green and see what the hell is, uh, is going on over there. And upon arriving in the projects, they're not exactly the most welcome. No. <laughs> uh, they just Helen, ride right up into those projects. They just too. ride straight in. They're like at the building. and They're at the building. She's like, she like parks her car like on the lawn. She's like, great, we're here. <laughs> um, and it's pretty noticeable that they don't belong. Helen is the only white person uh, around, which makes her stick out like a sore thumb. And they do some creeping and crawling around uh, because the story with Ruthie Jean is that um, the killer, supposedly Candyman, entered her apartment through the bathroom mirror and uh, and killed her inside her own home. And she was screaming for help and and nobody came and nobody believed her and what have you. So they find this apartment and they crawl through the mirror into the other apartment. And there's all sorts of strange murals that intrigue uh, Helen and Bernadette's like, the hell are we doing here? <laughs> um, so they take some pictures and they, they head on back and they're at dinner that night with um, Trevor, good old Trevor. Trevor. And so, uh, his colleague. Yeah, or, like they're yeah. like other professors. One of them yeah, doesn't not, speak. Yeah, and then there's like <laughs> Professor Longhair McCreepy, who I'm not entirely sure like what his deal is, but he's there, and I guess he has also written about urban legends in the past, including specifically about Candyman, and he kind of like throws some academic shade at them, and he tells them the origin story of the figure that is now known as Candyman, who was said to have been the son of a former slave who um, built himself a successful shoe business. Yeah, or he like, he like, it was like, manu- like the first time they had manufactured shoes on a large yeah. scale. Oh, yeah. that, that's what it is. Like mass produced shoes. Yeah. Um, which what an origin story um and so Candyman, because of his father's success was able to grow up um sort of wealthy and sort of connected tangentially to um society with a capital s and he developed a talent for painting and so he would paint the portraits of the wealthy elite of chicago 
And um, that led to him falling in love with the uh, white daughter of um, a prominent Chicagoite. Chicagoite. I'll go in. And they had an affair, which resulted in a child. Um, this, of course, was crossing the line at, you know, at the time, the late 1800s. And so Candyman was uh, lynched and he was lynched very violently. He had his right hand topped <laughs> off. yeah in bloody fashion and then he was stripped naked and smeared with honey from a nearby apiary which led a swarm of bees to sting him to death afterwards his corpse was dragged to a great big pyre and lit on fire um leaving his ashes to just sort of float and scatter about and settle on what is now the Cabrini Green Housing Projects. Spooky. Spooky, 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 spooky. So, um, when, with this, with this information in hand, Helen and Bernadette are like, okay, so this is, this sheds a new light on things. Um, When they return to the projects, they're able to meet uh, two Two further residents. Um, one is Anne Marie, who is a single mom living in the apartment uh, next to, or it's like, like in, the, in the hall, like yeah, the same like hall the, as that one. The same, yeah, the same like floor where Ruthie Jean lived. And they also meet um, a young boy named Jake, who, um, when Helen goes back on her own, probably not the best idea she's ever made. Uh, Jake takes her to um, a nearby public restroom where he tells her a very disturbing story of a child who I think it's implied a couple years ago was uh, brutally killed and castrated Mm -hmm. inside the restroom. And this slaying has, of course, been attributed to Candyman. So Helen's like, great. I'm going to go check out the scene of the crime. So yeah. she goes the scene of the crime. And when she goes to the scene of the crime, what happens to her? All right. So she's in there. The bathroom's real gross. Um, you know, it's dilapidated. It's clearly being used for like, you know, graffiti and drug dens and all this other stuff. Uh, and she's poking around, not really sure what she wants to see other than just taking some pics of the area. Um, and what ends up happening is a group of men come into the bathroom who, a couple of them were people that we had seen earlier who kind of accosted them on their first visit to Gabrini Green. Um, the one man who seems to be kind of the leader of the group we have not seen before. Um, and he is a, a large man in a like black trench coat and he's holding a hook in his right hand. And he says, you're looking for Candyman. Um... And she says yes and tells them to, you know, let her go, that her her husband and her colleagues know that she's here. And if, you know, she doesn't come back, they know where to look for her and that'll bring the police. Um, <clears throat> and the guy basically closes off with saying, you know, like, oh, you're looking for Candyman, you found him. And then hits her over the head um, with the hook. Um, and then they leave. 
Um, Jake comes in and finds her and I guess calls the police and gets, you know, because next we see her looking at a lineup of men and she picks out the the man who is responsible. She's got like a, a major black eye and some swelling and um, I think it was implied maybe she got a little bit of a concussion as well. Um, but basically what we learn from this detective who is helping her uh, identify this man is that they believe he's actually the sort of quote-unquote candy man, that he's using the legend to keep control of the area. He's the head of a, a gang um, that sort of controls Cambrini Green, and he's basically using the legend as a way to scare people and kind of puts on this persona when he, you know, attacks people or when he needs to um, intimidate people. And they believe that he's responsible for the death of... Um, Ruthie Jean, responsible for the death of the boy in the bathroom, um, which is entirely possible. Um, a good thing about this, one of the you know great things about this movie is you're not really sure what is supernatural and what is um, actually, you know, that. Like, he very well could be responsible for those 25 deaths. Because um, a, a kind of line of thinking that the movie keeps coming back to is that, you know, everyone's kind of berating Helen for being so interested in deaths in you know, a poverty-stricken, low-income area where there's gang activity. They're like, of course, 25 people have died in violent ways over the past whatever. Um, but she's, you know, fascinated and convinced that there's there's something more to it. So that happens. Um, and she takes some time off to recover um, mm. because, you know, ouch. Um, and basically, after a couple weeks or so... Um, of, you know, working from home, you know, trying to can be, have a good relationship with her husband. Like we see as time goes on, like her husband's kind of, he's distant, he's late coming home to dinner, etc. That kind of is a growing thing of tension, but she comes back to work finally. And Bernadette is like, oh my God, your eye is not, your eye looks fine. This is great. Also, I have the pictures. Because I think it was implied that they smashed her camera um, when they attacked her in the bathroom. Uh, she was able to salvage most of the pictures somehow. I don't know how cameras worked in 92. Um, this movie was released literally two days after I was born. So. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, at TIFF. So, um, yeah. So she's like, I have the pictures. Like, it's great. Like, we can continue to do work. Um and Helen's obviously jazzed. So they go to leave um, from the parking lot or the parking garage. One, another great use of creepy parking garage. Two, the majority of this movie takes place in the daytime. Mm -hmm. um, not a lot of it's and not a lot of the creepy stuff is happening at night. So they're leaving the college and um, Helen's getting into her car in the garage and she hears this... She responds to it so casual, but it is not a casual voice. Um, <laughs> voice in the parking lot. I would be like leaping over the railing and being like, I will jog home. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is the voice of Tony Todd. Um, we quickly come to realize that it's Candyman, um, you know, saying her name and saying um, he's come for I've come Helen. I've come for you. And she turns and she sees a man standing at the far end of the garage in like a long coat, kind of similar to what the guy who was pretending to be Candyman was dressed as, except this guy seems a lot more sinister and 
put together and stuff. And he just sort of slowly walks towards her and says um, that she, through her research, um, in so many words, he says that through her research, she's sort of sowed a disbelief in him. She's she's created doubt in his legend and he needs the belief of people to keep his legend going for whatever reason. So he's he's pissed and he's like, all right, well now I have to kill people more because you're doing this. Um, and asks her, he says, this is the first of many times he, he, he says to her, be my victim. Um, and after that, she kind of blacks out. Um, she's kind of under a hypnosis as he's talking and walking towards her and then she blacks out. And where does she wake up? So, when Helen wakes up, she finds that she is in a bathroom and she is absolutely drenched in blood. And she's like, whose bathroom is this? And why <laughs> drenched in blood? Which, to be fair, is an appropriate reaction for waking up in such yes. a situation. She's like smartly thinks at first it's hers because she goes mm -hmm. to check. And she checks herself to see if she's been injured, if she's been stabbed. I mean, she was attacked somewhat recently. So, you know, maybe some PTSD going on there. Yeah. But uh, she's not. She is physically okay. And so she sort of stumbles confusedly out of this bathroom and sees the severed head of Anne-Marie's dog lying on the floor. And then realizes that she is in Anne-Marie's apartment all of which is drenched in blood. She then sees Anne-Marie herself covered in blood and wailing over an empty, bloody crib because her baby, her young son, Anthony, is missing. When Ellen sees Anne-Marie, who has picked up a... Or when Anne-Marie sees Helen, my bad, uh, who has picked up a knife to defend herself, Anne-Marie instantly attacks her. Ellen tries to defend herself. There's a bit of a scuffle. At the moment that Ellen has the upper hand, the police arrive. They burst in, and Ellen is, Helen, sorry, is arrested. Um, it does not look good for her yeah. in any way. <laughs> no. Um, she is uh, accused of breaking into Anne-Marie's apartment and decapitating the dog and um, kidnapping Anthony. And... The police are not having Helen's version of Avenged, which is, I have no idea how I got there. I just woke up covered in blood. Um, so she is taken to jail. Uh, she tries to call Trevor, um, but he does not answer the phone. And uh, she begins to have a bit of a panic attack about her situation, understandably so. And... Uh, but she does eventually get a hold of him and he comes down and pays her bail and Helen is able to go home. But uh, she learns that um, the, pol the police are intending to eventually charge her with uh, first degree murder once they find Anthony. The implication being once they find Anthony's body. So it's not looking good for Helen. Um, she tries to relax. She tries to get these visions and flashes of Candyman out of her head. Um, she takes a bath while Trevor runs out real quick to pick up work from the school, supposedly. 
And it's at this point that Candyman reappears to, to Helen, or right after her bath, rather. And once again, he beckons to her and says, you know, become my victim. Basically, like, this idea of, like, become part of my legend. Like, mm-hmm. keep me alive. You will you will become the next chapter in the story. And then he does something very interesting to Helen. He puts his hook at the back of her neck and pierces her. And she starts to bleed a fair amount to the point where she falls unconscious. Unfortunately, it's at this moment that Bernadette has come over to the apartment to check on her friend and colleague And she hears her moaning and groaning inside and is wondering what's going on. She finds that the door is unlocked to Helen's apartment. She lets herself in. And then what happens to Bernadette? So um, Bernadette comes in and she turns and she sees Helen on the ground, bleeding profusely. And standing over Helen is uh, the Candyman. And she sees this and she's kind of falling under the same sort of entranced... Well, you're not sure if she's sort of entranced or she's kind of just in shock. Um, The idea is that he sort of hypnotizes his victims and that was, you know, something they did purposefully in as a production thing that they wanted rather than screams. They wanted him to have a hypnotic effect on people. So she might be hypnotized, she might just be shocked, who knows. Point is, as she stands there, she's staring and she sees Candyman who obviously comes over and just, you know, attacks her. We don't see it. We just hear the screams. Helen has, like, passed out by this point. But she was left with a butcher knife in her hand. Uh, When she wakes up, um, the police are there. Like, I guess the idea is that um, Trevor came home, saw this, called the police. Um, They obviously are like, well, she strikes again. Um, Since she has a butcher knife in her hand, there's blood everywhere. Bernadette is very dead, um, and <laughs> dead. they decide at this point that um, Helen's like too dangerous to be allowed. Like she's paid her bail, but she's kind of she's just she's too dangerous to not be monitored. So they take her to what we find out is a psychiatric ward um, and strap her down to the bed. And um, she's having these these visions. She sees Candyman floating above her bed. She sees him in the room. She sees him crawling under her bed and, like, hiding under her bed. And the orderlies are just, you know, typical horror film orderlies in a psych ward um, who just come in and just stab her with needles and walk away. That one guy is, like, cringingly stereotypical as yeah. me. Yes. When he, like, when he says, like, oh, we're going to Disneyland, like, come on, dude. I know. It's like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so she wakes up a little bit later. Um, it seems like it's only been a couple, a day or a couple days. Turns out she's been in the hospital for a month. Um just basically completely, you know, doped up on various sedatives and antipsychotics um, because basically they're trying to get her to a point where they can evaluate if she is competent enough to uh, stand trial mm-hmm. since she is now going to be super tried for <laughs> for murder. <laughs> um, and uh, she tells the doctor that, you know, she she can prove that she didn't do it. She can she can summon the real killer, and you know he's not he's you know he's whatever about it. She looks in the mirror in his office and says Candyman five times. Candyman does appear from behind the psychiatrist and just gets him with the hook. 
uh, and then jumps out the window and vanishes. Um, Helen takes this as an opportunity. Which is really actually kind of like funny and when- not all that scary when he's just sort of like sucked out back through the window. Yes. <laughs> up into the air. <laughs> and he just vanishes. Um, <laughs> like I just, <laughs> every time I'm just like. <laughs> there he goes. So yes, he gets sucked out back up the window and vanishes into into the day. Um, and Helen decides that the most prudent course of action is to just escape because nobody's going to believe her and now somebody else is dead and it's just, it's too much. So she escapes through the window, um, knocks out a nurse, takes her um, scrubs and is able to just walk out of the hospital pretending to be a employee. Um, and she heads back to her apartment since, you know, where else is she going to go? Remember, it's been a month. So she goes there and she finds that all the furniture's like new and the walls are being painted and the student. Absolutely hideous shade. Yeah. Oh my God. It's a t- Every single wall is like, um, like, like Pepto-Bismol. Pe- Pepto-Bismol. That's exactly what I was going to get. Yeah. Um. So it's weird, you know, and we don't even really recognize it as her apartment anymore. And she sees um, painting in the kitchen, painting the wall, is um, the student from Trevor's class, who she was kind of worried about at the beginning of the film, who was talking to Trevor a little too closely. Um, You know, and it's implied throughout the movie that Trevor may have been cheating on her or not being truthful about where he was and now... The grad student is moving into her apartment um, and they have a little bit of a back and forth where they confront each other and eventually Helen's like, well, fuck this and leaves the apartment and they, you know, call the cops, but she's long gone and she decides she's going to go to Cabrini Green um, and try and find the Candyman um, and sort of deal with him head on. Um yeah. And she's also trying to find the baby because she keeps having visions that the baby is alive, that Anthony is alive somewhere in the bowels of Cabrini Green in the various, um, you know, dilapidated apartments that we saw earlier. Um, so she she goes to find the baby and find Candyman, thinking, like, this is the one thing she can do to sort of save herself at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and what does she find when she goes there? So when she gets back to Cabrini Green, right, like she goes deep into the bowels, like Miss Mel was saying, like exploring where she didn't really get to before. And she finds a new series of murals that uh, sort of reveal to her and by extension through us, the story um, visually of Candyman's lynching um, and how he met his unfortunate end and how he became the legend that he is now. So Candyman appears at this point and he essentially offers Helen a deal. If she will become his victim, once again, sort of like surrender herself to him completely, he will return the baby safely to um, his mother. And there's, you know, some, some weirdness and some back and forth between them. And then Candyman disappears taking, uh, the the baby with him and so um helen has a bit of her existential crisis and she's wandering around a bit more she sees the mural of um the mother of Candyman's child the woman whose affair that he had led to his own lynching and she 
there's rather a striking resemblance <laughs> to our uh, to our MC, our protagonist, which does not go unnoticed by Helen. And um, immediately after this, she wanders into a room that is um, lit with candles. Where did the candles come from? Who lit them? Who knows? And uh, a message on the wall that says, it was always you, Helen. Uh, So now there's this idea that Helen is um, Candyman's lover reincarnated. And so this sort of... um, all convinces Helen and she essentially like more or less gives in to Candyman, you know, with the stipulation that he has to, to keep his promise not to hurt um, the baby. And he's like, sure. Like, you know, and he goes off on his whole thing. You're going to help me like maintain my existence. Like my legend will be reborn. Like the fear, the grip that I hold over Cabrini green will become even stronger. And so he says, the way that we're going to do this um, is by uh, um, you, like, dying in a very public fashion. So Helen's like, great. (laughs) Then she hears um, a baby crying. And she makes her way to this very large... um, pile of junk that the residents of Cabrini Green have been gearing up to uh, eventually get rid of um, in a bonfire. And it turns out Anthony is inside this pile of junk. So she climbs up and she climbs through all of this like dilapidated furniture and garbage and like for sure she has tetanus. Yes. And uh, she finds the baby and she's like, okay, going to return the baby and then like, whatever, I guess I'll die. But then Candyman appears and is like, actually you're both going to die. We're all going to go up in flames. That's, that's my real plan. So he's essentially betrayed her, her, he's lied to her. Mm -hmm. Um, and the fire, the residents come out and, uh, the bonfire is lit And Helen is like, fuck this noise. And she fights back against Candyman. She's able to um, stab him through his chest, his chest of bees, of course. He he just has like an open bloody rib cage full of bees. She stabs him with a a burning log, I think is what it is. Yeah, and she escapes um, the fire, but at... Uh, very severe cost while she's able to shield Anthony and return the baby to Anne Marie. Uh, Helen is, is, is way too injured. She is essentially like on fire. Yes. (laughs) The funny part is, is everything's on fire, but her face, but her face. Yeah. Yeah. Like her hair all down her body, insanely severe burns. Like the residents put her out. Um, but it's, it's too late at that point. And Helen dies, um, after, after returning the baby and foiling Candyman's plan. So flash forward about a week or so, and we are at Helen's funeral, um, which is visited by a long procession of residents from Cabrini Green who have come to pay their respects to Helen, um, 
and sort of to thank her for returning uh, Anthony. Um, and Jake and Anne-Marie are at the, the very front of this possession. This has um, quite an emotional effect on Trevor, who uh, later that evening or at the very least the next day is sort of having a personal moment of grief and guilt and uh, anguish and um, just general mourning over Helen uh, in the bathroom while um, his new chippy Does she have a name? I think it's Sarah um, is like very aggressively trying to get him to come make salad (laughs) while she's walking around in the thinnest shirt. It must be freezing in their apartment because her titties are just like the thing is, is like she's she's very frustrated that he won't come to dinner. Like you know that he's upset that his ex wife has yeah been he's killed. He's like maybe feeling emotional about that. When she throws the meat on the counter, yes, it's it's so weird. She's unnaturally angry. Anyway, um, because he's so grief stricken, evidently Trevor sort of like call, he calls out to Helen five times whilst in the bathroom and in the reflection of the mirror. And this summons Helen's spirit, who, with the use of a hook, disembowels and murders Trevor, uh, leading to his discovery by Sarah, uh, who screams. She's a good screamer. She is. Um, uh, Which ends the main action of the film and as we cut to the credits we find ourselves back in one of the abandoned uh, flats at Cabrini Green and we come in close to a new mural on the wall that depicts uh, Helen sort of um, like ringed by fire uh, symbolizing that now she has become uh, just like the urban legends that she has dedicated her life to. Mm-hmm. And that is the end of the film. That is Candyman. Yes, it is. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of naturally, like the film is very racially charged and very, um, you know, uh, socioeconomically charged. Um, and that, you know, all was very much on purpose. And it had a sort of mixed reaction from people uh, when it came out. A lot of people, when it came out, found it to be, like, actually very racist and very tone deaf. Um, and I think I with, with time, people started to realize that it was a lot more um, nuanced and complicated than people realized. Um, that the, the tiny pieces of the story you know, that, that people found fault with, like the casting of a black man as the villain um, and focusing on, um, you know, a real-life housing project area in Chicago um, were not really the point so much as the the bigger point was, you know, a story of, you know, horrifying history between between races and, you know, the continued... Um, forced segregation even today um, 
in urban areas where, you know, people of color are predominantly forced into low-income areas that aren't serviced by, um, you know, uh, retail or aren't serviced very well by transit and that sort of thing. And then also, like, the commentary on Helen as, like, the white savior complex and this woman who's going into places that she should not be going into and going there for the wrong reasons. Um, and it has since become a film that people regard as a a worthy commentary on, like, a situation at the time. Um, although, it, you know, it still always will have its sort of back and forth. Um, yeah. But what's interesting... Well, go ahead. No, I was just going to, I mean, you said that, like, so beautifully and succinctly, um, I think it just speaks to, to the film being, like, a very intelligent, complicated film that, like, there is still the, sort of this back and forth. Yes. And it's like, well, you know what, this this might be a little problematic here. And it's like, well, you know what, maybe it's it's actually a really sharp criticism and it's a really sharp commentary, you know? Yeah. So... Yeah. Well, yeah, and like a lot of people would say, you know, like that the film purposely kind of has these um, um, elements that might be viewed as, you know, stereotypical or racist because it's purposefully, it's doing that on purpose to, you know, engage with the racism of people watching it, kind of similar to how, you know, you have satire embraces the things that you bring to the table um, to point out, you know, why they are terrible. Um, and one of the articles I was looking at on the ringer, um, that came out like two years ago now, a little over two years ago, um, which was talking about get out and Candyman as similar films. And it's interesting the way it links, um, uh, Oh, what's his name? Daniel Kaluuya's character. Oh, the character? Yeah. Um, son of a bitch. Chris. Chris. His name's Chris. Chris. Yeah. Uh, it links Chris and uh, Helen as, like, similar people doing opposite things. You know, Chris is very uncomfortable in 2018 going into, you know, a house full of white people as the only black man and the only other, you know, black people there are people who are servants. Um, you know, that's, and... Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, and Helen being the only white woman going into the projects without that same fear, right? Like, you know, he's terrified. He's like, I want to get the fuck out of here. She goes in like, we're going to be fine. Like, you know, just the the embodiment of white privilege being like, it's cool, it's fine. We're supposed to be here. Nothing's yeah. going to happen to us. Um, which was interesting. Um, and they're saying ultimately pretty similar things about institutionalized racism, you know, in different ways. I mean, we look at Get Out and, you know, it's very suburban, white, liberal, upper, you know, old money, upper class. And then here you've got, you know, forced segregation, you know, uh, the results of white flight and the way that people would just kind of try and corral um, all the black people into one area of a city and then basically starve that area of resources and, and anything to make the neighborhood better. Um, so it's an interesting, and I can tweet out the article. It's an interesting article. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people would love to read that. Yeah. Um, including myself. Yes. That's really interesting about sort of the the juxtaposition of Chris and Helen and, like, 
both of them finding themselves in situations and environments where they, uh, quote unquote, don't belong Mm -hmm. and how they respond to that because Chris keeps his guard up and he keeps his caution and he sort of, and he's right at the end. Like it's right. And And Helen is pushing boundaries. You know, she's, she's swooping into Cabrini green and just walking around. Like she owns the place and that she has the total right to be there. She's mocking the Candyman legend. Like, you know, and I think for her, she almost tips over into this, sort of white arrogance almost and mm-hmm. is very severely punished for that. Um, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Especially cause Bernadette, who is her friend who is black, who ends up dying because of all of this, like, yeah. you know, when they're heading for the first time to Cabrini green, she's like got pepper spray. She's really nervous. She thinks it's stupid. She's afraid they're going to think that they're cops and like attack them. Whereas, you know, Helen looks at it all and says, Oh yeah, they're going to think we're cops. So they'll stay away from us, which is just like the total, like, a total, like, lack of... Awareness, yeah. A lack of awareness, a lack of sensitivity, like, a lack of a lot of things. Especially looking at it now, post, um, you know, everything that, you know, we've got going now with Black Lives Matter and that sort of thing. True, yeah. We're bringing another 18 years of... Yeah. But, like, the, the, the beginnings of it are there, though. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. For sure. Um... And then, so the other interesting point, and I'm curious to get your take on this, is, like, the one thing that people do kind of continue to criticize about the film is the epilogue. And the way that Helen comes back and gets revenge on um, Trevor, and the way that it kind of basically is saying, like, oh, her having an unfaithful and kind of douchey husband is the same thing as this black man being tortured and lynched for, for falling in love with falling in love. a white woman. Yeah, I could definitely see, or I think that's a fair criticism Mm -hmm. to still level at the film. Um, Like, it's, like, Trevor's a douche. Yeah. Like, there's no question about that. But, um, fooling around with his grad student... If he even did, because... Yeah, it's one of those things, like, was he doing yeah. it, or did he end up doing it because she was accusing him of it? Like, Right, right. Um, is, yeah, is nowhere near the level of, uh, of a betrayal or a slight or a crime against somebody as being lynched. Yeah. Uh, so, sort of, like, the pain and trauma that birthed Candyman is not quite on the level of what has apparently birthed the urban legend of Helen. Um, I mean, I get, I like the the poetry of it. It's definitely like a classic horror thing to do. Sure. Um, but I also see the criticisms of it where people say, well, it kind of, in doing that, it kind of, you know, cuts at the, the point that the film was trying to make throughout. Right. It's almost like, they, they wanted to do it sort of just, like, to keep up that imagery, right? And, like, the, the doubling is a big theme mm-hmm. throughout this movie. Um, that we see a lot, black, white, rich, poor, sanity, insanity, fantasy, reality. And then 
black man, white woman, both being an urban legend. But like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that that is the note to end on just for the sake of like keeping up that theme. Yeah. And, you know, it is one of the, like you said, like there are many themes in this movie. It's not just this. It's like, you know, the theme of doubling, the theme of dual dual presences, even the theme of like folklore itself. Like if it does anything, it speaks to the, the cyclical nature of folklore and urban legends, which is like what the movie is ultimately about because that's where it starts. You know, we start with that lecture that Trevor's giving about modern day folklore and, and urban legends as modern day folklore. Right. And then we, what we're watching is Helen become that modern day folklore. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's interesting. You touched on it a bit before and we kind of alluded to it a bit before as well, but um, just this, the idea and the question of like, what is happening? Yeah. You know, because all of Candyman's appearances in the film are have this like very hallucinatory quality to them. And so even though it's not in our face, I think there is a question of ambiguity. Like, is Helen really losing her mind? Is she having these blackout episodes in which she commits really, really violent acts against people and then because of her mental state is like creating this Candyman mythos, this character, like, yeah, cause she is, I mean, you know, we see Bernadette seems to see him, but for the most part, she's the only one who sees him. And right. it's the only yeah. confirmed victim of his, um, because we don't know, like, did she murder, you know, those people did that, you know, the, the sort of, uh, gang overlord murder, you know, those people like, we don't know. Right. And I even noticed uh, on this past rewatch with when um, Bernadette's murder comes around, she enters the apartment and she sees something that shocks her. And then we cut, we get a shot of Candyman, mm-hmm. but we don't ever see Candyman and Bernadette in the same frame. Yeah. Like look, clearly looking at each other. Right. And like you said, like we, we don't see Bernadette's murder. We hear her scream as the camera is focusing on, you know, just like the couch or something. And then, of course, we see the aftermath. We see her body. Mm-hmm. So we don't know, um, which is really an interesting layer. I think it fits with, with like the themes that the movie is working with. Yeah. Um, I don't know what where I fall on it. I think I think he's real. I think like, he. I yeah, and I think he is real too. Um, but I like the way that the film plays with that, and I like you know the 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 possibility of like you know does her sort of you know is there a psychosis that's making him more real? You know, like mm-hmm. is she feeding into that? You know. I like I like blurring the lines between um, you know psychosis is it in the head versus is it real um, a lot of places do it and don't do it well this is an example where I think you can make a case for either one or both even at the same time you know they both could also yeah. be a thing that's happening yeah yeah this does do it well this is and I think speaking of like 
just things that like this movie does well. I would almost say like this is probably like the the best Barker adaptation. Mm-hmm. Like I know. Like, when we think of Clive Barker and horror films, like, Hellraiser comes to mind first. Mm-hmm. Which he directed, and, like, Hellraiser is great, but, like, I don't know. Hellraiser is also fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. You can pick it apart, and I think there's some analyses that you can do with that, but I think Candyman has way more layers. Yeah. I agree. And, um, and I think it's also the most interesting of the... Um, it's not like a full-on subgenre, but just like the grouping of films that sort of like deal with uh, urban legends come to life. Mm-hmm. Like um, I know what you did last summer, Nightmare on Elm Street, to an extent. I think this is the best one of sort of those class yeah. of movies as yeah. well. And I think it uses that the best. Like I, you know, like we said, like it. Most of it takes place in the day. Like, she's not exploring a, you know, old, decrepit, haunted house up on a hill far away from this, you know, from an urban center. She's in the middle of Chicago going in apartment buildings and poking around um, and parking in, you know, gross public bathrooms where terrible things have happened. And I think that just, you know, it shows how creepy that can be, um, you know, and speaks to, you know, what the film's trying to say about, you know, the true horrors of certain parts of urban living. Um, you know, not to say, you know, I love myself Urbanoia. a good, Urbanoia. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I love myself a good creepy house up on a hill, um, where, you know, it's raining and the wind's blowing. But at the same time, I also like the idea of, you know, oh, everyone avoids walking past that block because they say that, you know, a murder happened there and it's haunted and it's in the middle of like, you know, right. honking cars and stuff. Yeah, like, it's nice to see this kind of story, this, like, dream demon character play out away from the preppy suburbs for once. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree. And, um, yeah, like we said, we, you know, it hits on a lot of different things. There's a lot of interesting conversations in here about poverty and class division and Social inequity and yeah. um, and it's not in your face about it either, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting and something that yeah yeah. There's never really a point where somebody says this is about social inequity or you are a white person you should not be here. Like there's never a point where people flat out say anything. It's like all stuff that just happens organically. Like, you know, they're being, you know, them getting sort of harassed by the, the men around Cabrini green, um, you know, the interactions with Anne Marie, um, the fact that, you know, this former slave was, Uh, or this this man who was the son of a former slave who was lynched and brutally killed, you know, happened in this housing project and now he's haunting, you know, the descendants of of former slaves and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah, like it's all, it trusts the viewer enough. Mm -hmm. Like it trusts our intelligence to be able to pick up on these themes. So yeah, it just kind of can just give us these, these moments and these beats and these details. Like even just like, the one little thing I noticed, like, 
when Helen and Bernadette are having the conversation and she talks about her apartment is laid out the same way as the yes. green, green projects, but her building eventually became like these luxury flats yeah. and Cabrini Green was left to, de- to deteriorate and to yeah. no one cared. And I was like, that's such a good, strong detail about yeah. what's going on in this film. And they make a similar point too, when she, when they catch that man who had attacked her and she's mad because they knew it was him and they'd been trying to get him, but they hadn't really do, been doing much work. And they were like, oh yeah, we know he probably killed that woman and killed that boy, but there was nothing we could really do. And she was angry. She was like, well, why, why is it that a white, you know, she makes, you know, she doesn't say this, but it, you know, what we end up, what it ends up being is a white woman got attacked and that's what brought this man into jail. Not the, the woman, the black woman and the young black boy that he had murdered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a, it's a solid film. Um, it's, it's a classic. I mean, Candyman as a villain, I feel like completely dominated the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where it's so funny because it's just an adapted bloody Mary legend, but like, uh, like I remember people saying, Oh, have you ever like done Candyman in front of the mirror? You know, like it became mm-hmm. its own thing. After yeah. This. Um, as like a sleepover game, which is, which is cool. Um, it was followed by two films of diminishing success, Candyman Farewell to the Flesh, uh, in 1993 and Candyman Day of the Dead in 1999. Um, both of those involved the figure of Candyman, uh, tracking down his descendants, and basically haunting them until he was acknowledged as an ancestor. Um, they took on a bit more of a slasher, like traditional slasher structure to those films. I don't actually know if I've ever seen Day of the Dead. I know I've seen Farewell to the Flesh. I think I've seen bits of it. Um, which, which has its moments. Whatever. Um, it also, Candyman also helped keep Clive Barker sort of on people's minds because he had, um, lost control of the Hellraiser franchise by the, by the time the early nineties rolled around. And, um, this sort of reminded people of his work in film, um, which was good for him. And it also brought Bernard Rose into sort of the public sphere. He had directed a very creepy movie that I highly recommend uh, several years earlier called Paper House, um, which didn't get him a lot of attention, and then this did. Um, but if you like how Candyman was directed, go check out that movie. It's super creepy. Nice. Yeah. Good stuff. And uh, and that's Candyman. Do we have anything we really want to make sure we add? Um... I know that um, uh, there was a stipulation on set um, because they used 500 real bees and Tony Todd had a um, stipulation that for every bee stung he got, he got, he, every time he got stung, he got a thousand dollars and he he ended up getting stung 23 times. So he walked away with 23,000 extra dollars. So 23 grand just for... Getting yeah. stung. I mean, not just for getting stung. That would be very painful. 
Yes. But, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the, the person who did the, uh, the wrangling of the bees is the same person who did them in fried green tomatoes and my girl. So it's the same bee guy. It's the same bee guy, the same beekeeper. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Solid, solid. Um, (laughs) just some fun facts. Oh, and the hypnosis was real. Oh, was it? They actually hypnotized her to get it to to make the scene look realistic. No way. Yeah, because basically they wanted this hypnosis to, you know, instead of people screaming, they wanted there to be a, re- like, they didn't want, they're like, we hate that. We hate that people always scream in horror films when they see things. We need to find a way to make sure they don't do that. Like, what could they believably, what could believably stop somebody from screaming when they see a man with a bloody hook for a hand coming towards them? And they're like, oh, like, he hypnotizes his victims. He has a hypnotic effect. Yeah. And then to make it realistic, they literally actually hypnotized, um, what's her face? Virginia Madsen. Madsen. Um, Before scenes, and they, like, came up with words and everything. And so she was, would be hypnotized in those scenes. Oh, my gosh. I never knew that. Yeah. That is. I like to look it up fun facts. That's awesome. And like, yeah, because it also now I'm thinking it makes it really powerful when Sarah screams at the end, because that's the first real scream we've heard for the whole film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So well done. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. All right. Um, Oh, sorry. I was just going to add real quick. If people wanted to sort of learn more about Candyman, um, Tony Todd. And the film itself come up a lot in the uh, Shutter documentary Horror Noir, hmm. which looks at uh, the history of black horror cinema. We um, we did that one last year, I believe. Yes, we did. We did. And if you didn't check it out last year, um, do check it out this year because um, it's pretty pretty well done documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you want to buzz in our ears. <laughs> About anything related to Candyman or uh, anything else, really, that's going on in the world of horror. There's lots of ways you can do that. I believe Miss Mel is going to be kind enough to tell you how. I believe I am. So you can tweet us at SplatterChatter666, minus all the vowels, if we don't pop up. Um, Just put the vowels in there and you'll find us pretty easy. Um, You can email email at us, email us at... Splatterchatter669 at gmail.com. You can Instagram us at Splatterchatter666. You can tumble at us at splatterchatter.tumblr.com. You can leave comments on the new blog, splatter-chatter.com. Got it. Um, and Mr. Cargers will tell you a little bit more about how you can get super involved if you'd like to cross the line. If you want to cross the line and show us some financial support because you love us so much, you can find out how to do that at patreon.com slash splatterchatter666. We give you all kinds of fantastic uh, shows of our appreciation in return. Or we very much welcome you to uh, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Those are all of the places where you can find our show. Now, this is going to close out episode 76 on Candyman. When we next return for episode 77... We're about, we're about a week off on our schedule, so it might be, it most likely will be, guys, another Friday the 13th special. Mm. That's right. There is one in March, and we are up to Friday the 13th part six. 
um, a new beginning. Nope, not a new beginning. Jason Lives. Yes. Of that film in which our hockey wearing, uh, our favorite hockey mask wearing slasher returns to the franchise. So be on the lookout for that, you guys. And until such time, we want to remind you to keep up the creep. And for now, we're going to say au revoir, adios, and that's the dog.